Conflict, conflict resolution. And we're going to try to finish some things up today. Uh, we have, this is lesson number nine. We've been talking about peacemaking for uh, really the last couple of months. Uh, we've looked at this in really two ways. Uh, on the left here, this learning to love one another through confession, repentance. We're asking the question, have you sinned? And this is, we're just talking about a specific scenario maybe in your life. Uh, in, a, in a particular relationship where you have been guilty of, of offending another person or sinning against another person, um, what the scriptures have to say about resolving that. And so we've looked at Matthew 5, Matthew 7, uh, as well as Proverbs 28 that encourages us, tells us, in fact, that we won't find God's compassion, um, that we will not find blessing unless we are willing to unco- uncover, if you will, our own our own sins, uh, rather than try to sweep them under the rug. So we just sort of summarized it with these phrases, go, deal with your own sin, confess, repent, seek forgiveness, be reconciled. Those are just some, some, some terms and even some phrases from, from the scriptures themselves uh, as it relates to this part of, of conflict. Uh, then, we, then we started to look at this other side, which is learning to love one another through correction and forgiveness, and the question of have you been sinned against? And so we've looked at, again, a number of, of passages, uh, Proverbs 19, and the need to overlook some things in one another's lives. Um, Mark 11.25, which tells us that at the very outset when we are sinned against and Offended that in our in our hearts we just settle this in issue in our hearts in that moment that we are going to forgive. So Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Uh, Matthew eighteen fifteen also the the command there to go and to show. So you. You, if someone has sinned against you, or in, and let's just say some, someone has sinned in such a way that it's affecting their testimony or it's affecting their relationships, even if you're not the direct recipient of that, if you observe sin in, a, in another believer's life, you still are, there's a responsibility to go. So just because you say, well, the sin's not really specifically against me, if you're aware of it, you still go. Uh, and because you, you just have to, you have to assume that you're the only one that might have seen this thing in their life. So you can't just sit back and say, "Well, I don't like confrontation, and that makes me nervous, and I don't, I'm, I'm fearful of how that's going to turn out." And you just ignore it and hope that the Lord brings someone else across their path to deal with it. You can't make that assumption. You've got to go with the information that you have and uh, seek to restore them. Uh, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, this is, again, that ministry of rebuking and reproving and then the forgiving, and this is in the more transactional way. This is when someone actually acknowledges their sin and they say that they are repentant, and Jesus says there that we're to forgive. And so there's, I think, two, we talk about two aspects of forgiveness. One, this attitude, and then secondly is this actual action of forgiving in relationship. I think that's what Jesus is speaking about in Luke 17. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 11, we looked at that and the need for, for individuals as well as for a church. Once a person has acknowledged their sin and repented, the need for us to be just as diligent to reaffirm our love for that person 
and to forgive and to comfort them. So we don't want people to, after we've forgiven them, we don't want this like cloud to, to loom over their lives. We want to work hard to restore that relationship um, and to even, we want to communicate, be good at communicating that to them and not just assume that they understand that, but, but, but let them know that you want to build that relationship back. And a good example of this, I, in fact, this happened in our church. I'm trying to see if uh, the people, <laughs> I always get nervous when I use examples because I'm like, I don't want people. You would never know anyway. I just get fearful that the people might, that, that they get, start sweating uh, because they realize I'm talking about their, their situation. Um, but there was a, a recent thing in our, in our church uh, in recent months where I, Kelly and I were, were at an event and one uh, person, one husband and wife, uh, said something that was offensive to another husband and wife and, and, the, and, and kind of probably that going back the other way too. And so Kelly and I were for the most part unaware because we didn't really have the understand a lot of the dynamics and, and even the content of what they were sharing with one another. Uh, but that night, I think it was that night, one of, the, one of the couples sent an email to the other couple and just said that, hey, listen, we said this at dinner. We should have never said it. It was sinful. It was wrong. Uh, will you forgive us? We, we, it was shameful. Um, just really, you know, all, all that they could do to try to acknowledge their sin. And they copied us, Kelly and I, on it because we were hearing it. Even, and so they, did, they didn't know at what level we did understand what was going on. And then the other couple responded back and basically just said, you know what, we got home and, and this was just as convicting <laughs> to us that we had said this in that conversation. And so would you, yes, yes, we forgive you. And would you please forgive us for doing this? And so it was just this, I'm like on the sidelines, like watching this confession, repentance, forgiveness going on. And what was it, the, maybe the most exciting part to me was they said, can we get together and have lunch this Sunday after church? Because a lot of people would have just left it with, hey, I, please forgive me. Oh, I forgive you. And then, and then come to church and then maybe, maybe, maybe talk to each other, maybe interact, maybe not. But it's as if they both wanted to reaffirm their love for one another in such a way they're like, let's not just leave it with, I confess, will you forgive me? Let's, let's get together so that we can genuinely put that conversation behind us. And let's talk about some other things. You know, let's talk about, yes. So, so what is the situation where an email or a text apology is okay and when it's not? Okay. <laughs> All right, moving on. Second Corinthians chapter two. <laughs> yeah, this is what that, that they used to say. You know, tell preachers you say, okay, he stopped preaching and he started meddling, because I could start to meddle at this point, and that would be a good question for us to come back. We're going to have some Q and A, but that that's a good one. And I don't. There's not. A, and the, the answer to that is there is no, there is no clear right and wrong. I mean, I, I, I've I've seen some of this go on in the. In the, uh, the, the, the web world, the internet world, the, the um, texting world, I, I'm not saying that that's all, you know, that's horrible if that ever happens that way. Um, I think in this case, the thing that might have driven it was the fact that they were trying to get us in on it in a way, but not directly. 
So it allowed them to say it and to say it so that we could hear it and them not know, were we, were we offended by it? Which we weren't, because again, we were sort of ignorant of what was going on, but it gave them this opportunity to do it and to include us in it, which might have been more difficult to do if it was a face-to-face thing, to, to bring us into that. I don't know. I'm not, certainly not faulting them for, for doing it via email. Um, I do think that you have to be careful about that, folks. I mean, the reality is it just we are more comfortable saying things electronically and by text than we are face-to-face. So I, I, I always prefer uh, doing that face-to-face, but, you know, we're not going to say that it's, it's sinful um, to do it in some other way, but I think you'd, there, there, are, there are some cautions there. So that's, uh, that's just an example, you know, of this idea of comforting, that you, it's this reaffirming your love, you know, you've got to make sure that you somehow you communicate that. And in this case, Paul's telling the whole church to do this. Like this guy has repented. Now the church needs to do something to sort of convey the fact that this issue has been resolved and they need to move on. Uh, we looked at Galatians 6. Again, this ministry of restoration about restoring a person that is caught entangled in a trespass or sin. To how, to, how to do that, restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. Also being very concerned about your own attitude when you do that because he says there, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So just uh, letting us know that this is a situation when you go to restore another person or to rebuke another person, that is fertile ground sometimes for you yourself to, to get ensnared in sin. Whether it's the same kind of sin this person is, has been committing that you're going to correct or if it's just simply a frustration and an anger when this person doesn't maybe respond the way that you want them to respond. Uh, but Paul gives us that warning. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 5, again, the ministry of, of admonition uh, for those who are living an undisciplined life. Uh, into 2 Thessalonians, where Paul at this point is telling them to, to guard against this individual or these individuals in the church. Uh, that were being busybodies and that were not working with their hands and were waiting for the Lord's return but not being responsible with their God-given uh, duties uh, to work and to, uh, to provide uh, for their own families. And so Paul instructs the church that if these people will not listen to that instruction that the church is to keep away from them or to avoid them or take precautions against them, he even comes down in verse 14 and says that if they don't obey what Paul's given to them in the letter of Second Thessalonians itself, he says, take special note of that person and do not associate or mix together or mingle with them so that that individual will be put to shame. Again, hopefully leading to repentance, but being careful not to regard that individual as an enemy, but treat them as a brother. So it's not where when we when we have to we get to this point where we have to dis, sort of distance ourselves, disassociate from from professing brothers and sisters. We're not we're not coming down on are they saved or not. It's that's not our job. Our job when we even in the process of church discipline, when we have to discipline someone out of the church, we're not making a declaration that we know for a fact that they're not saved. We don't know that. I mean, now in time, that, those kind of things will be revealed, but that's not the point. We still relate to them in a way as a brother or sister. We don't 
get to that point where we regard them as an enemy. Again, unless there's more to come, right? I mean, you go a couple of years down the road, and then you might be looking at a totally different kind of situation at that point, depending on if that person hardens their heart to the truth that keeps coming at them, or if the Lord begins to soften their heart, and we see indications of of repentance and humility. So uh, all of that, again, the purpose of this entire thing is is restoration and, and reconciliation. Uh, and so we sort of summarized it here. Forgive is an attitude. The bottom here, go, expose, warn, forgive is an action. Again, once they acknowledge their sin, you cover that, you forgive it. Uh, love covers, you comfort them, you reaffirm your love for them and restore them to both use, use their usefulness to Christ and usefulness within, within the body of Christ. Now, there's one other passage I want to look at, and that is this uh, Hebrews Hebrews 12, so if you want to turn there, Hebrews 12, you may remember this particular book was written to primarily to, to a group of Jewish Christians uh, who had made a profession of faith in Christ and were trying to, to give their undivided attention uh, to Christ, but then sprinkled among these believing Jews were some who uh, apparently had not yet been truly converted or saved, uh, those who had identified superficially as professing Christians with this community of faith but were in, uh, were in name only, uh, not, not in truth. And, and most of them, most all of these, whether there were true believers or just professing believers, um, those with genuine faith or those with superficial faith, regardless, they were experiencing a lot of, a lot of challenges um, because of persecution in the church at that time, uh, great conflict. Uh, families were cutting them off uh, because of their association with the church or their profession of faith. Uh, their friends were turning them out. They were being shamed. They were being reproached because of their identification with either Christ or the church or both. And it's in the midst of this that the writer of Hebrews says essentially to be careful that when you, get worn, when you get worn down in this race of faith, that you have to be careful not to, not to quit, not to turn back. Uh, and so he, he's, 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 he's encouraging them throughout this epistle to keep pressing on, uh, to not allow that, that pressure and those circumstances and the persecution to cause them in any way to... To, uh, to turn back. And so he says this in chapter 12, verse 12. He says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And so he, he begins here, uh, and, and you, you know this, when you, when you find, see this word, therefore, it's, it's usually pointing back to something that's just been uh, spoken or stated and and some of those things that he's referring back to here are the fact that things aren't as bad as they could be because it's easy to forget that. You know, you get into these difficult conflicts, situations, uh, afflictions, persecution, and you, you tend to think that you can't take any more. And yet he reminds us back in verse 4 that we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and are striving against sin. And so there's... 
We're not, we're not dead, basically, right? You're still alive. We also have to remember that many have gone before us. In fact, that's what chapter 12 is all about, right? All these faithful believers that endured hardship, Noah, Gideon, prophets. Uh, he's told us that God is for us and that God is our Father who disciplines us because He loves us. And he does it to the end that our faith would be deepened and our faith would be purified. He talks really about that in this section right before we get to verse 12. He also tells us this is part of God's training program. I mean, this is just the way that God educates his children. He, he fosters spiritual maturity uh, and he prevents further sin in our lives as Christians by bringing adversity and by bringing discipline into our lives. And so he has a much bigger goal than usually we do, right? We, we lose sight of this, but yet in God's program, this is just the way he trains us, right? This is just the way he produces godliness in our lives. And then he says Jesus is our example and power, and he mentioned this back in verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 12, and uh, tells us that Jesus has gone before us, that Jesus himself... So he would say earlier in the book of Hebrews, learned obedience from the things that he suffered, and that Christ himself gives us strength moment by moment as we, as we look to him. And so he's just saying these are, he's given us all these reminders of, of how to be, how, the perspective that we ought to have when we're in the trial. And then he basically tells us here in verse 12 that that's not just a lesson for us. But that's a lesson that is meant to be shared with others. So he says that we're to go and to strengthen other people. So he's, he's basically saying you yourself should take strength because of the things that he's just taught. But then he's saying you have a responsibility too, not just to apply these things to your own life, but you have a responsibility to the other people around you to make sure that you're encouraging them with the very same truths. And so when you run into other brothers and sisters who are under their own trial and they're getting bogged down a lot like you feel sometimes because they don't know why God is doing what He's doing in their life because they may not even like what God is doing at that moment in their life or... They're beginning to think that it is too much for them to bear. You bump into those people and you hear them describe their difficulties and you hear them describe their doubts. And the writer here is saying to us, don't just recall this encouragement for yourself, for your own benefit, but share this encouragement and comfort with others. So in other words, bring, bring this encouragement to, to mind to their, to their minds or bring, bring encouragement to them in the same way that it came to you. So he says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. That is to say, straighten up, get those hands and those feet up, keep running and help others to do the same. So he's saying, you, you encourage yourself with these things, but then there's also this, this responsibility you have to make sure that the joint is not dislocated and becomes where it doesn't work anymore. And, and when it doesn't work anymore, people don't keep running. <laughs> it's like, so don't allow 
these others around you to get to the place where there's some like a dislocation of a joint or they lose strength to such a degree that they just quit themselves. In fact, it's, it's interesting because this, this idea of, of, of restoring or healing is, kind of brings in this Galatians 6 concept we've talked about, this ministry of, of restoration. Now, what's even more impactful, I think, is the fact that the, the author here does what he's done many, many times already in this epistle, and he quotes from the Old Testament. In this case, Isaiah 50, uh, 35 which is a, a powerful chapter. It's what we refer to as, a, you might say, a kingdom chapter. It's talking about the, the coming kingdom, the restoration uh, of Israel, and it's, it's really a message to a very discouraged na- nation who is face, facing exile. And so this, this is the word that comes to those people in Isaiah 35, verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then here's where he pulls this from, verse 3. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Now, again, if you think about, we're not just talking about general affliction and not just talking about general persecution, but if you look at the near context of what he's saying in Hebrews 12, he's talking about sometimes specific trials that come as a consequence of the fact that we're not always living the way that we should, right? In other words, they're, they're coming in a disciplined way. And so when we're under the discipline or when we're under God's chastening hand, again, we can get very disheartened. We can get very discouraged. Why, why were the people of Israel going into exile? Because of their sin, right? Because of their own disobedience. And so this season of chastening is coming, and yet he's telling them, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble and say to those who are anxious, they're anxious about this this discipline from the Lord that is coming, but remind them not to fear because God will essentially, he's going to settle all these things. (laughs) He's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with persecutors. He's going to deal with enemies. He's going to, to... produce within you through this season of discipline more holiness. He's going to, to, to take away from you this appetite for the things of the world, and He's going to give you a greater appetite and a desire for Him, and He's going to come, and He will save you. So don't let this season become so overwhelming that you forget those promises that you forget that God is going to keep His children, that God is going to work in His children, that God is going to purify His children, and He's going to come and He's going to deal with all the injustices. And in the end, He's going to save your soul. He's going to save you. And in this case, He's actually also saying, and, and, and He's going to come and He's going to establish His kingdom. So these promises that you thought that weren't going to happen, don't, God hasn't forgotten these things. And He's going to fulfill every one of them. So it's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, 
don't run out of gas now. You've got to pick it back up again. There's victory ahead. Strengthen the hands. Strengthen the knees. Stay on God's paths. Keep to the running lane which God has assigned to you. Keep your steps from wavering and from swerving to the right or to the left. Why? Verse 13, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint or dislocated or, or literally turned out of the way. So that it, You might say so that it doesn't become totally incapacitated or so that you don't quit so that you or anyone else in this race, so that you, if you profess to know Christ, or anyone in the church will be able to finish this marathon of faith. Then he says this, verse 14. Pursue peace. Again, we've we've mentioned this verse several weeks ago. We just kind of went in and plucked it out, but this is here it is in this context. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So we have this pursuit, right? So he's just saying, take strength, don't quit, be, be on guard about where you are and how you're thinking about this, get the right perspective, and then look around and, and help others, strengthen others who are faint and weary. And this is a uniquely aggressive word, a strong word, per- pursue. We've said it's even translated into the book of Acts in some cases as persecute. Pursue peace, because when we don't do that, when we don't think there's a need to do that or that that's important or we don't value that, then what happens is just further discouragement, more discouragement, divisions, factions, a concern for the things of God sort of fade away, members of a church have very little love for one another, and sometimes a once very lively church body slowly turns into and transforms into an, a very uninviting gathering. So he's just saying, listen, we all, we all have problems. We're all self-serving at times, proud, unforgiving, vengeful, apathetic. We say horrible things. We do horrible things. We think horrible things sometimes about one another. And over time... I think what he's saying is that we begin to sort of partition off certain people because of these attitudes. We kind of section those people off in our minds and we begin to interact with less and less people in the church. And our church, if you will, really just shrinks down to a small group. Maybe it's, you know just a handful, because we have so many of these people on our exclusion list, because we're not pursuing peace. We've sort of given up on that. We're under God's chastening or we're in some season of affliction ourselves, but rather than deal with that and rather than look out for one another, churches gradually over time just die because there's one hurt after another hurt. It's just one little bit at a time. It's not usually all at once. It's one unresolved issue at a time, and ultimately it's thousands of decisions not to strive for peace. So I'm just saying it's in these seasons when we are, sometimes we give up on striving for peace. But we actually need to do the opposite. (laughs) So it's like we're worn down, tired, and weary, and yet the admonition is now persecute peace. Go after it. Strive after it. And... 
One other thing here, he says we need to pursue, the, he calls it the sanctification, which is really just referring to practical holiness. It's this, this present, not so much the fact that God has set us apart positionally, but it's this present sanctification or this, this ongoing process in our lives as believers of being conformed to, to Christ. So this is our, our words, our lives, our actions, communication, our, 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 our way of relating to others, our thoughts, our desires, all should be becoming progressively more Christ-like over time. And what he's saying is that that doesn't just happen, especially when you're preoccupied with other things. Because we tend, again, to sit back and not pursue these things when we're in challenging situations because we tend to get self-focused. And so we sort of sit back. We're not actively pursuing these things. We kind of assume this sanctification thing is kind of a passive process. But yet here he tells us sanctification is not passive. It's something to be pursued. And so our tendency, I think, in the midst of hardship and difficulty is to become morally lax, to feel that our struggles give us some kind of entitlement some sort of excuse that exempts us from the need to chase after holiness like every other Christian. But he says here, nothing could be further from the truth. That during times that we are weary and faint, that we need to consciously strive and help others to strive for godliness, which is absolutely critical for a number of reasons, but notice the one he gives here. The end of 14, because without this you won't see the Lord. So he says, in all your adversity, God is at work designing a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, pursue peace and pursue the holiness that God is pursuing in you by His discipline. And and understand that God is at work in you, but don't let that become something that drives you to passivity, but you need to get to work. (laughs) Get to work. Take these things to heart, get to work, pursue holiness, pursue peace. That is the way to finish the race and to finish it well. Stretching yourself forward to peace, extending your entire being towards holiness because ultimately it is peacemakers and holy people who finish the race. Now as you do these things, he goes on to say that as you are taking strength and as you are beginning to look out to others and as you're pursuing peace in these relationships, and if you think about this, you go back, to, we went to the Beatitudes a few weeks ago and we talked about those who are pure in heart and then right after that, the blessed are the peacemakers. It's fascinating to me. We don't always put these two things together, but even Jesus put them together in the Sermon on the Mount to say, these are the these these are like the main indicators that a person is a part of God's kingdom that they pursue holiness in heart purity in heart so it's not an external thing but they genuinely long for holiness in their heart and they are peacemakers so he puts those things together and he essentially does the same thing here these are the two things that we should be striving for we should be striving for peace So that's our relationships and holiness, which is really the condition of our own hearts, right? So we take care of our hearts, but then we realize that if we're doing that, if that's genuine, then that 
you can't keep that from infecting the way that you treat people, right? So these things go together. And he says, as you do this, as you strive for these things, interesting here, he says that we are to guard against defilement from within the church. Now, note this, this, note, of, this note of concern and responsibility for others that seems to be implicit in these, these admonitions here, beginning in verse 15. Notice he says this, See to it, which is just a word for look diligently, or we, we translate this to oversee, or to take responsibility for, or to, or to watch out for something or someone. In fact, this is, this is something we often associate with the role of pastors, and elders, because pastors and elders in the New Testament, sometimes they're referred to as a, a, a pastor, elders referred to as a bishop, or in some translations we say, or an overseer. So we sometimes associate this responsibility with leaders in the church, but in this case, it's not directed at elders, but every member of the believing community. So what he's saying is this pastors and elders certainly have a responsibility to be looking over and attending to the flock, right? They have a responsibility to be concerned for the flock, to protect the flock, to to be on guard against things that threaten the flock. But this passage says that's actually a responsibility of every person in the church. So it is a unique responsibility of elders to do this, but that doesn't exempt the believers in the church from also fulfilling that responsibility. So he says, verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Verse 16, See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So he gives us this threefold warning. One is very short and general. The other one is a little bit longer. It has this Old Testament allusion referring back to Israel and the danger of apostasy. And then he gives us this third warning, which is based on the specific example of Esau. He says in verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And so he's talking about here that real danger that some professing believers will fall away from that, from that profession. Not that they'll lose their salvation, but that they will fail to persevere in that pursuit of sanctification and in that pursuit of peace, and in that demonstrate that they were never truly saved. They will fall back and abandon grace and the race. And then he says, See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now again, he's referring here to figuratively to a person who causes trouble. So this is a person. This root of bitterness is a person. It's not a motive or it's not an an, an attitude of unforgiveness. Because that's where I hear... That passage misused a lot as people say, oh yeah, he has a, they have a root of bitterness. <laughs> and what all they're really saying is that they have unforgiveness in their hearts. But that really doesn't fit the context. So this, this actually comes from Deuteronomy 29. It's, it's an allusion back to that particular passage. And this is for the nation of Israel. Let me just 
just read this for us in Deuteronomy 29.14. He says, Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the, in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold which they had with them, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman. Okay, so he's, he's talking about, he's talking to the nation of Israel, and he's saying that when you go into the land, you need to be very careful that there not be a man or woman, or notice he says, a family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace through, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. So the, so the writer of Hebrews says, See to it that none of your, we'll call them fellow contestants, right? Because he's using this race imagery going back to the first part of chapter 12. See to it that none of your fellow contestants fall behind in the race and turn away from the prize that is before them. So this, again, it's about the threat of apostasy, which is really a theme that's already come up several times in the book already. But here it is once more, this, this concern about the peril of apostasy or dropping out of, of the race. And so I think what the writer is doing here is, is simply saying that um, where there are symptoms that such a situation may be developing in the church, attentiveness and searching self-examination are urgent necessities because even one person discouraged because of the hardships of the race who hardens into a bitter and rebellious spirit and abandons the race could by their apostasy cause serious harm to the body of Christ. And then he says in verse 16, see to it there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. And again, uh, what we know of him, I mean, he uses two terms here, godless and immoral, an unrestrained man, a sensual man, a profane man, had no regard for God, despised his birthright, which in his case was to despise God and to insult the goodness and grace of God. Later, filled with regret about doing that, about selling his birthright. In fact, we know he even lifted up his voice and wept, but he didn't repent. And we know that because three verses after he cried and wept and had this regret, in Genesis 20, 27, we learn that he bore a grudge against Jacob. That is to say, he hated Jacob and made plans in his heart at that moment to kill Jacob after their father's death. 
So he turned on the tears. He seemed to have regret about a decision that he had made, and yet he turned right around. He became a very embittered man and was just as governed by his fleshly passions as he had been years before. We call that worldly sorrow rather than a godly sorrow that leads to life and salvation, a worldly sorrow that leads to death. So he's just saying, listen, we're a family. We are a body. We, we need this community. It takes all of us pulling together, looking after each other, sinning, but confessing and repenting, confronting and being confronted, forgiving and being forgiven, having the hard but good conversations over and over again, because when that's not happening, people don't run the race with endurance, and many of them drop out of the race all together. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, instead of getting preoccupied with your problems, start looking out and start looking around and start collecting the stragglers. This isn't just about you, and it's not just about my afflictions and my persecution and your sufferings and your season of chastisement or my season of chastisement. He's saying you need to take strength yourself, but then you need to immediately begin to look around and see to it that no root of bitterness springs up, that no one in your midst begins to, because of that discouragement, begins to harden their heart. And though they may have some level of regret, they don't have true repentance. This is the responsibility of everyone in the church. It is your responsibility to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of the whole congregation. It is your responsibility to involve yourself in the body of Christ and to see that others go on in the race. It is your responsibility to receive that kind of loving care from others because we all need grace to finish the race. And there have been and there will be many who make a beginning in the Christian community, but through fear of persecution or faint-heartedness and suffering are tempted to defect. And in time, some do turn away from the gospel and the person of Christ and fall short of true salvation. And the book of Hebrews cries out and says... Do all that you can to prevent that from happening. That's why he says, let us, not just me and not just you, but let us run with endurance. It's about us, all of us, finishing the race together. Chapter 10, verse 23 said this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what does this process of peacemaking look like? Well, you've dealt with your own heart. You've decided what things, what faults, what sins you can and should confess. You've taken responsibility for those things. You've repented. You've asked for forgiveness. But in in, in the case in which you are sinned against, you must now go for the purpose of restoring the other person with the desire to expose the truth, but with caution, knowing that you may be missing a key piece of information. But if the sin is clear, you speak the truth in love. You state the problem from a biblical perspective. You call them to repent and to put faith in Christ. 
and you continue to serve them in their faults, allowing time to respond as you rest in God and wait upon Him to accomplish His will. With gentleness, with patience, even Paul told Timothy this, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And if they repent, you extend forgiveness as an action, which means you commit not just to the Lord, but to them to not turn this over and over again in your mind, not to gossip about it to others, not to bring it up in the future for the purpose of hurting them or using it against them. And when the issue has been worked through, you cover it and you move on. If the issue remains unsettled, you may need to get other people involved, other godly people in that process to serve as mediators or witnesses or to bring greater accountability or wisdom to the issue. But the general principle is that the one with the sore toes goes because he is the one who always knows. So whether you are the one who sinned or you're the person who's been sinned against, if you recognize that there's something between you and another brother or sister, you go. If you think you've sinned, you go. If you've been sinned against, you go, not for the purpose of condemning, but for the purpose of restoration And in all that, you recognize your limits because only God can change people. So you do this, you try to be faithful in that, but ultimately you can't make people change. And you have to trust the Lord in that. And if it doesn't seem to be working out the way that you thought, you don't give up on it. You don't say this stuff, man, I tried this, I tried this doing this God's way, but it doesn't work. These methods are useless. You don't do that. You just remind yourself that God is sovereign, that there's more to learn in this. You resolve not to give up. You resolve not to close your Bible. In fact, you seek God even more earnestly through the study of His Word, through prayer, keeping your focus on Christ, reminding yourself of how patient God has been with you, controlling your tongue, keep doing what is right, keep praying, and use that that weapon of deliberate focused love. At the very least, that will protect you from being consumed with bitterness. And in some cases, God may eventually use those things. Your prayers, your blessing, your generosity, your doing good to that person to bring that person to a place of repentance. That is God's way of dealing with conflict. I mean, that's it. Folks, now there's more passages and there's other and there's details and there's specifics about certain things. And and we haven't even really touched on the issue of church discipline. And we've done a lot of teaching on that through the years. And so that's there's a, a time for that. But this is really on that personal level. How do you resolve these issues? Yes, if you go and you're faithful in this and you've given people time to respond and they're they're hardening their heart. And as Matthew 18 says, they're not willing to listen then there is a process by which you do bring others in and bring that accountability. And ultimately, sometimes the church has to get involved and a person is maybe ultimately disfellowshipped because of their stubbornness of heart. But that's really not the focus of this for me in teaching this this summer. It hasn't been to rush to church discipline, (laughs) right? We've got teaching on that. If you want to know more about that, uh, we've done a lot of that, but this has been more for me, just how do you resolve these things on a personal level? 
and, and it's realizing your responsibility. And, and you might even be scratching your head. Why, 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 why the Hebrews? I get, tell me again, what's the Hebrews 12 passage have to do with conflict resolution? The connection between Hebrews 12 and conflict resolution is that, folks, this is a God-given responsibility. I mean, this is not optional. It's not optional for us to just let other Christians stumble along and maybe do well, maybe not do well, and us just sit back and not be concerned about them, but only be thinking about ourselves. This is about the fact that we need other people in our lives when we're sinning to come to us and gently restore us, right? When we're discouraged, we need people to come alongside of us and encourage us. When we're undisciplined, we need other believers to come alongside of us and rebuke us. And it's a two-way street because there's times when others are discouraged or others are stubborn of heart, and we have a responsibility in this church to come alongside of them and to speak the truth in love. And that's what Hebrews 12 is about. This oversight that we have in one another's lives to help each other so that we finish, right? So that we persevere in that pursuit of peace and holiness. So that hopefully, Lord willing, all of us will see the Lord, right? I mean, that's what we want, right? That's the, that's the goal. We want to see the Lord, but we've got to persevere and endure in these things. And it takes that ministry of us in the lives of one another to get there. This isn't a solo thing. This is something for us to be involved in as, as a community and as a body. All right, well, we'll stop there for today. And then what I want to do uh, next week is talk some about these conscience issues a little bit. And again, I'm not going to spend as much time as I did in uh, this other class a few months ago with that because we've had some emphasis on this in Romans 14 and 15 uh, in our sermon series. Uh, but we'll try to dip into that a little bit. And, uh, and then questions like uh, what Sean had about things like, how do, we, how do we do this maybe in a specific situation? Somebody asked me about Barnabas. Uh, and Paul and and conflicts in Acts and were these what was going on there and so I know you you guys may have some specific questions we'll try to try to allow some time to tackle as many of those as possible okay all right folks thank you so much for your time.